Awesome. Well, again, uh, I appreciate you taking the time to, to chat. Um, you know, I think uh, I, I haven't had anyone come on the show with, with you know, this level of sort of threat hunting background. And it's not an area that I am have experienced and I've never been a threat hunter and I've never actually really been part of an, of an IR team or, or, you know, I'm more so focused on the red side rather than blue. Um, so I'm definitely interested in, in sort of getting into all things. So, um, maybe we can just start with a quick introduction of, you know, who you are and, and, um, you know, you work at hunters. It sounds pretty cool. So, yeah, yeah sure. So, um, nice to meet you as well. I'm, I'm Shachar Vaknin. Uh, I'm living in Tel Aviv, Israel. Uh, and as you mentioned, I work in Hunters as the uh, threat hunting team leader. Uh, my team is called uh, Team Axon. Uh, you can find it on like Hunter website, uh, Twitter and stuff. Um, and what we do is basically providing threat hunting services to our customers. Uh, first, I'll say that Hunters is a company that provides, uh, um, that develops a stock platform, which uh, analysts can go and work on top of this platform. So they won't go and switch between different consoles of security tools and try to investigate incidents from different attack platforms separated. So we're trying to like consolidate all of it into a single platform. Uh, and that's that's the Hunter's product. And my team, uh, the threat hunting team is a services team that provides like on top of the platform uh, services to our customers. Uh, so that, that's a bit about my team, uh, about myself. I have around eight years uh, of experience inside the cybersecurity industry. Uh, most of it is, is from the Israeli army, uh, where I was doing some cybersecurity research areas, uh, a lot of different roles, but all around cybersecurity research. And in Hunters, I've been working for the past two, two years, two years and two months. Uh, as a threat hunter and afterwards as the uh, threat hunting team leader. Yeah, so that's that's a bit about me. Yeah, awesome. So, I mean, without getting to, into everything that you did sort of in your, in your you know, military background, you mentioned sort of, you know, security research and it being somewhat more general. I'm, I'm curious, like, what got you interested in, interested in threat hunting specifically? Is there something experience you had um in your in your past that sort of got you into it or do you i mean it's it's a pretty interesting i think you know advanced uh discipline within sort of that blue side of the house but i, I i'm yeah. interested in, in sort of how you got into that yeah so so as i mentioned like in the army i was doing a lot of um cyber security research roles in the both on the red team and the blue team side um and afterwards i i search for a cybersecurity role within the industry. I didn't really know what exactly I want, uh, if I want to be a threat hunter, detection engineer, uh, red teamer, et cetera, et cetera. And then I found these uh, hunters, uh, which was a pretty small startup uh, company back then. Um, and I don't know, this role sounds very interesting to me. Um, I haven't done any threat hunting before that. Uh, so I started to dive into this world and what I think is really, really cool about threat hunting is the, uh, is the fact that it combines both, uh, the red team, uh, side and knowledge. And I mean, in order to be a good threat hunter, I think you need to think like the attacker. Um, so it combines both 
very deep rating knowledge and uh, rating mindset and the knowledge uh, of the blue side, uh, blue team side uh, that requires knowledge around data sources, different security tools, different attack platforms, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, for sure. Um, I think there's, um, you know, I, I included this sort of in the in the preface to you, but I think in what I've read, whether it's in security Twitter or on blogs or just talking with people, I think there's a lot of confusion as to what threat hunting really is. And I, it's actually somewhat akin to, to red teaming. I think there's a lot of confusion about what red teaming is. Um, I mean, you gave a, a, you know, a little bit of background around what makes threat hunting tick, but do you have a concise sort of, if you were to explain, you know, in like a textbook fashion, what threat hunting is to somebody who wasn't yeah. really sure what it was, yeah. how, how would you, how would you describe it? So I, I heard a lot of uh, interpretation of, of what's threat hunting, you know, uh, similar to red teaming, uh, everyone sees it in different way. Um, as I see it is like um, hunting for, for threats basically, but not relying on the, on the automatic tools um, and on your automatic detections. Try to um, find some way to uh, go in between this um into this gray area between the high threshold attacks and those signals which you know for sure that if i found i don't know mimica is running on my endpoint that's probably an attack that can be like a legitimate use of, of this tool um and then you have the low threshold stuff where you know all the um office executions and uh administrator activities which may or may not be malicious and I think that's where threat hunting should focus at, because that's where the automatic tools really, really struggle. Um, so, like uh, shortly, I think threat hunting is leveraging your uh, knowledge and, and cyber experience in order to detect what the um, automatic tools and the traditional tools does not detect and can't catch uh, that easily. Sure. Yeah, I think and that's. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, and then, of course, uh, taking all this knowledge and, and investigation process and trying to automate it into your your uh, the tools you use in order to find these attacks. Yeah, for sure. I think the one the one threat hunting concept that I'm really familiar with that I've heard that's more like on the scientific side of the house is, is long tail analysis. So sort of looking at, yeah. uh, you know, sort of that anomalous, um, you know, uh, you know, this looks this looks strange. This looks you know outside of the baseline, and, and and using that as a as a you know a pivot point, right? Let's 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 sort of dig into this. Um, so, I, is, are there other uh, yeah you know, conceptual? So see, yeah, yeah. So, um, so as I see, there are two main um, main I'll say uh, paradigms of of threat hunting. The first one, as you mentioned, is is the long tail analysis. Uh, what I call the database hunting. Uh, where I'm trying to find, you know, the abnormal stuff, um, the activities that doesn't happen regularly within my network. Um, and then without knowing really what I'm looking for, what kind of attack I'm looking for, but looking for the anomalies, which shouldn't happen uh, regularly. So that's that's like the long tail analysis, trying to find those common activities, filtering them out, and then focusing on the stuff that doesn't happen um, in my organization or was seen happen for the first time in my organization. Uh, so that's that's the first um, perspective of threat hunting. And the second one is attack-based threat hunting, 
where I'm saying, okay, I know attackers are um, are abusing regisvr32.exe, uh, for example, uh, a Windows binary for executing their uh, malicious DLLs. And I'm going to hand over all the regisvr activities within my network and then filtering for these or that flags uh, in order to find attacks because I know attackers use it a lot. So that's like attack-based threat hunting. So that so that's um, like making a, making an assumption like I'm I'm going to assume that somebody's already breached the network and this is how they're doing it and then key on that in terms of how you're essentially hunting for that you know yeah, potential yeah. adversary very cool um, so let's somebody wants to bring you in to do threat hunting in an environment so new environment they come in they say hey Shahar I want you to come and do some threat hunting and you say okay great but I need what so I you know for long tail analysis it sounds like well, A, you need, sounds like data. Yeah. And for the opposite one, you need some level of access. So maybe maybe walk me through either, whether it's, I, you know, the commonalities between or, or, or for one or the other, you know, what is it, what do you need to effectively threat hunt for either one of those paradigms? Yeah, so, so the first one, I think the basis of all of it uh, is visibility, is to have this, the right data uh, to find these kind of attacks, the, these kind of anomalies within within the target organization. So the first thing I need is the right data for it. Um, if I will go more specific, it would be your EDR logs, Sysmo logs, Windows event logs, Windows event logs, um, CloudTray logs, I don't know, firewall logs, DNS logs, web application logs, everything that um, that can um, contains such artifacts or evidences for for an attack. Um, so that's, that's like the basic of it, visibility. And the second, the second thing I need to efficiently threat hunt is, uh, a knowledge, uh, on, on the organization, uh, as we call it organizational context. Uh, so I'll understand, okay, this subnet is used, uh, for DMZ servers. So this mostly will be attacked first when the attacker is trying to infiltrate the network through your web server. And then I'll know, okay, um, this and that computers are used to um, to pivot to your OT environment. So they should be considered as crown jewels, right? Um, so that's the organizational context. Um, sure. I think these are the two main things. Yeah, so for an organization that's interested in either standing up an internal threat hunting function or bringing in a third party to help them do threat hunting, what would you say is sort of the prerequisite? Because I think there's a lot of companies that get excited about the concept of, oh, we're going to do some cool threat hunting or oh, we're going to do some cool red teaming, but they might not be a mature enough organization. For, for example, if they don't even have visibility, there's no sense having hiring a bunch of threat hunters because the threat hunters are going to come in and say, well, what am I supposed to look at? So for, I guess from your perspective, you know, what what should an organization do first? What should they have in place first before they even think about doing threat hunting? Or maybe they can start doing some level of threat hunting early on, as soon as they get a couple log sources or a couple, you know, some telemetry in place. Yeah, so uh, I'll say that the first thing, uh, as I mentioned, would be collecting these data sources. Uh, first of all, having these kind of uh, visibility in for your logs. Uh, if you're a Windows specific environment, then you have out of the box Windows event logs which are stored on your endpoints. Um, if you have budget to place EDRs on your endpoints, then do so, I strongly agree, uh, strongly advise, sorry. And then 
all uh, try to collect uh, all the raw logs that uh, these EDRs collect, uh, such as process creations, network connections, new file creations, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, of course, try to uh, store all of your network activity. Uh, if you have firewalls, firewalls, then try to collect these logs. Um, if you have like, uh, if you don't have any firewalls in your organization, you can use NetFlow in order to fetch this data from your routers and stuff. Um, web application logs, you know, web, web is a pretty wide attack surface, which is always been abused. Um, so it's pretty important to store your application logs. But if, if you don't have like, if you're wondering where to start from, I'd say try to, um, try to focus first on your, um, if you're, if you're uh, an on-premise focused organization, then try to focus on, on logs from your uh, devices, endpoint devices uh, of your employees, of servers and stuff. And if you're a cloud uh, focused company, then it would be even easier because you have these out of the box logs of AWS, CloudTrail or Azure Activity, sign-in, et cetera, et cetera. So Okay, so from a log source and visibility perspective, I, I, I think I got that. Um, from a personnel and capability perspective, would you recommend that an organization have like a traditional SOC and some IR, you know, triage capability prior to having a, a more dedicated threat hunting? So for example, I mean, let's, you know, before I would, so on the, I guess the, the, the parallel is on the offensive side, I wouldn't recommend people hire red teamers until they were doing vulnerability scanning, until they were exactly. doing pen testing. So, what's what would you say is the, you know, the, the mirror on on? You know, I'll keep calling it the blue side for for you know for ease of conversation. But what would you recommend somebody? You know, let's let's have these individuals. Let's have this function in place first, if there is anything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think it's pretty similar to red teaming. Uh, you know, threat handling. Uh, the first place. Try to use uh, the automatic tools um, that will be that will basically automatically identify those threats in the environments. Because as I see it, 80% of the attacker are using 80% of their times in technique uh, in the same techniques. Okay, and uh, most of the techniques are pretty similar, and a lot of them are basically detected by by uh, the current solutions. Uh, so having these SOC, these tier one, tier two analysts, which will go over these alerts and know how to respond to them is more important than having these, uh, I'll say tier three threat hunters or, um, you know, this higher level of, of expertise um, personnel, which will try to look for the more advanced stuff. Because first block and identify the basic stuff and then go for red teaming and uh, threat hunting side, which will try to look for the more advanced uh, and uh, complicated stuff within the network. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so keying back on the attacker-based threat hunting that you mentioned, and mm -hmm. I'm, I'm likening this again to, to what I think is sort of the red counterpart and, and red teaming. Um, you mentioned, you know, trying to key on a specific you know, specific TTPs, but I'm, you know, on the red team side, you might build, or you probably would, if you're simulating a specific adversary, a, you know, an entire profile, an attacker profile and all the TTPs that they might use, right? And you might source that from a place like FireEye or something. But is that, 
would you do something very similar on the threat hunting side? Say, we let's you know we know that this particular adversary, this particular APT group is uh, you know targeting us specifically or or our our you know our sector, and we're going to threat hunt just these DTPs. Is that is that a, a scenario that you might do? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think that threat intelligence is is a crucial key within both threat teaming and threat hunting. Because uh, if I'll take it to the rating side, you will need to know, we'll need to simulate the most uh, accurate and relevant stuff for your uh, organization or for your SOC. Um, and the same thing is, is about threat hunting. Uh, I wouldn't want to, to hunt on threats that are not relevant to the organization I'm hunting on, right? Um, so having this intelligence of uh, knowing, okay, if, if I'm uh, hunting on an organization from this industry, uh, let's say from financial industry, and I know that this industry is being targeted by attacker group like, I don't know, Fin7, uh, for example, uh, and Fin7 use these or that techniques, then I'll try to focus these techniques before I'm using, you know, some generic techniques I, I saw on MITRE and maybe interesting. Uh, so having these, um, threat intelligence and adversary context within your threat hunting campaigns are really, really important. Sure. Yeah. I, I see a lot of organizations who are trying to have more threat Intel led, you know, security decision-making. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think it's difficult for a lot of organizations to, to leverage it and leverage, you know, CTI in an effective way. So what would you recommend for companies that, you know, they don't have dedicated CTI personnel, um, no. but they might have some budget or some capability to ingest open source CTI feeds or, or, or bring, or, you know, get some commercial tools. So how would you recommend for, you know, small organizations to, you know, start leveraging CTI and, or, you know, and feed that into a red teaming program, uh, you know, a, a, you know, a offensive function or feed it into a threat hunting function or, or generally use it to make security decisions. Yeah. Yeah. So I think first that you have a lot of, um, public knowledge, which is available and you don't have like to acquire some advanced, uh, CTI company in order to get this intelligence. Um, if, if I can recommend, so DFIR report is pretty amazing source for knowledge and understanding of what are the trends? What are the main techniques being used right now? Um, that that's one place for knowledge and uh, Twitter basically. Uh, so you can get on top of things that uh, are happening at the moment, like and at the past, I'll say few months and even on the recent weeks, we are seeing um, a massive increasing increasing increment on on phishing attacks. Right. So it's pretty hot trend right now. So. You don't need like a CTI personnel or CTI company to tell you that, uh, to know that's, that this trend is pretty, pretty hot right now. So try to get uh, a good understanding of the cyber threat landscape and the current threats, trends um, by using Twitter, by reading blog posts, by staying tuned basically to, to all the recent news, I'll say. Um, and at the end of each year, you have these uh, threat detection reports provided by all the big companies, uh, CrowdStrike, Great Canary, for example, uh, which give you pretty good direction on, on what techniques are 
are pretty popular. So that's that's also a good way to know what to hunt for. Yeah, I think that's a good point. A lot of those companies, I think, you know, they they compile those reports in such a way that they're consumable by you know you know it's not like some arcane CTI stuff that only specific people can can ingest and understand. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I actually just saw somebody on Twitter post a. They compiled a list of all the certs and C certs and ISACs, like all the Twitter accounts, into one like Twitter group. So oh, you follow that, and you get you you know you have essentially right there an open source CTI feed. Um, so yeah, I guess mm-hmm. point is there's a lot that's out there, and and even open source. Are you familiar with the MISP project? MISP. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. I haven't worked with it much, but I from what I hear, that's also a uh, a decent way to go in the, in the CTI space. Yeah, yeah, it's a pretty good way to get, uh, you know, threat intelligence without uh, needing a, you know, a big budget for it. Sure. Um, so I, I do want to get into a little bit about the Hunter's platform. But before we do that, for, I guess, for performing threat hunting, maybe in an open source fashion, um, more so than anything else, or, or using like common enterprise tooling, like, I don't know, Microsoft's EDR solution or something. What what are some tools that somebody might use, you know, in either a small or like mid-sized organization to do threat hunting? Mm-hmm. So um, if I'll take you to my role, so basically Hunters is based on, on Snowflake data lakes. So Hunters customers are ingesting all of their log sources into Snowflake data lakes. So, um, you know, um, I'm, I'm hunting over this data lake, uh, which is pretty basic SQL stuff. You know, uh, we have different databases and then we are performing our um, threat hunts using SQL. Um, if you don't have a SIM tool, I know that there are a lot of uh, open source databases. If you're a small organization, you can use uh, MSSQL. Um, I know there's a free version of, of Elk, ELK, uh, which is, can also be used for for storing your logs. And over after you're storing these logs, you can just use um, the query lang- uh, language that's, that's relevant for your data storage. Um, and other open source tools. I said there, there are a lot of data analysis tools um, if I'll take, for example, uh, freq.py of Sans, um, mm. that's like uh, an analysis tool used to, ana- to analyze um, domains and uh, providing a long tail analysis of the domains that were interacted within your uh, company and then identifying DGA domains, uh, domains which are most probably not human generated domains and um, most probably used for like C2 communications and stuff like that. Uh, so that that's like a really good tool. And there are, there are a lot of GitHub tools which can be used also for, for this kind of operations. Yeah, I mean, it, obviously if, you know, a lot, at least half of threat hunting or a lot of threat hunting is, is you know, a big data challenge. Um, mm-hmm. w- do you think like somebody with just a data analysis background could come, you know, you give them a data set and they, you know, they could immediately start finding like this looks weird. They might not understand what the attacker context is, but just you know, solving typical yeah. big data problems. 
So I think it combines both worlds of data, data analysis and cyber knowledge. I can say that uh, when I wasn't uh, very, when I wasn't really experienced, you know, everything would seem you seemed like like an attack. You know, every anomalous command line or things that wasn't fit into the organization. Um, I thought it was okay. That, that's for sure an attack. That's an attacker activity. That that can be legitimate. But after you see a lot of these anomalies um, within different organizations, you understand that legitimate software can act in very unlegitimate or unusual ways. So that's uh, you're um, you're trying to develop some kind of intuition about what's what's an attack and what's not. And for that purpose, you need to have the cyber knowledge and the, what what I mentioned at the beginning of, of our talk about. Uh, thinking like an attacker. Um, so when I'm seeing um, a specific activity, I'm trying to think, okay, let's let's think that it's an attack. Why would the attacker want to operate such an activity or using such a tool? And what would be his goal? Um, and then when I'm trying to think and convince myself um, that, okay, attacker would want to use it because he was, he was trying to reach to this and that ground rules or trying to exfiltrate this or that uh, sensitive data, uh, then asking yourself these questions and thinking like the attacker will help you a lot uh, with identifying and, let's say, separating between these anomalous stuff, which is still legitimate, and the anomalous stuff that that's that's really malicious. Yeah. So you, you look at something, you say, that looks weird, but then you say, well, why, what, what goal does that serve, right? Or is that something that yeah. is typical of you know this particular attacker or you know what value would it bring yeah, for, yeah. for that to happen if I get more specific then yeah if i get more specific then if i see some you know unusual program running on a specific endpoint i would straight and go and go and search for this program around other devices within the organization because most probably um if i see this program running on 90 percent of of the endpoints in the organization I'll assume that that's not malicious. That's just some unusual program, but yeah, it's either not an issue or it's the really big issue. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. In most cases, it's not. Uh, it's it's found out to be legitimate, or hopefully, uh, because if not, then yeah, it would be a big issue. Um, but prevalence, we call it. We call it prevalence, and uh, in, in terms of like seeing how abnormal this activity. Uh, in context of of the whole organization endpoints, in context of this user, uh, have I seen this user executing these commands before? Uh, does it happen regularly, or is it the first time? Sure. Yeah. Are you familiar with? I I did a POC of this network like baselining tool. You've probably heard of Dark Trace, um, and I know there's probably very similar tools out there that do you know baseline. You know it, they sit there and they monitor your network for over the course of a month or something. And then they say, well, this is, this is what your network looks like typically over a month. And then, you know, then there's a number of things you can do in terms of like automated blocking or alerting based on, you know, as your network strays from that, from that baseline. But I think you were pointing out that even over the course of an entire lifespan of a network, you can still have very legitimate, you know, benign anomalies. Yeah. Um, so, so a tool like that, though, can maybe find some things, right, in an automated fashion. It still is likely to produce a lot of false positives. 
exactly exactly um so yeah yeah that's that's the i think the main thing with uh with what we call a uva you know uh behavioral analysis and trying to find these anomalies anomalies inside entire organizational activity um and you know it, it can happen uh it can happen a lot of times legitimately uh where for example i'm trying a new software on on my endpoint so that's an anomaly because i don't use it uh usually or regularly so that can be an anomaly and if uh a one computer um, if a user connected to a new device within the organization it may be both an attacker but in most cases it would be because that's that's a new device within the organization and the user haven't interacted with it before because he's a new employee or something like that so yeah uh, as, as you just mentioned from my experience it just generates a lot a lot of positive and you need to to find this fine line where you can combine anomalies anomaly behavior with with cyber knowledge um so you can clear out those false positive and only focus on on the right stuff yeah very cool so in a in a real world scenario you're in your threat hunting role you're you're you know hunting those threats as as you do and you find what you believe to be a very legitimate presence or or you know artifact that either an attacker is somewhere or has been there um you know has left some sort of trace what do you do like what what is it that you as a threat hunter do are you uh i mean obviously continue to hunt continue to find evidence are you shipping that to a, a different person in an ir capacity to do sort of that response or or are you going in and, and you know trying to kick them out what, what does that look like yeah, from your so, perspective? Uh, so of course i'm going in that that's where the the interesting stuff uh starts i mean sure. uh, you know when you see this real attacks real attacker activity and um that's where you know we're shifting the mindset uh between from threat hunting and looking for the threats to incident investigation mode incident response mode uh to where you need to investigate it you investigate the incident uh first of all we're trying to contain it as much as possible uh, before going to the RCA and understanding, okay, how the attacker got here, let's understand what's what's the scope of the attack, what computers have already been impacted, does he have, I don't know, admin privileges, privileges to my AWS environment, or is he only impacted this specific device? So try to scope the attack, understand where uh, does the attacker has uh, access to, and then contain it. And after you contain and mitigate the threats and you know, okay, the attacker wants uh, progress from here to other devices, try to trace all the activities back uh, and identify the root cause and how did the attacker came in. And of course, after that, uh, prevent these threats from happening again. Uh, For sure, develop yeah. Develop the right detections, uh, provide the right mitigations, you know, prevent these employees from being uh, local administrators on their devices. Etc. Etc. Yeah, it's, it's not as if you've you've let's say you 
find the attacker. It's not as if they're sitting in one one spot and you're like, I got him, and you kick him out. It's they could have they could have a, a point of presence, a persistence, uh, in a lot of places. And and right, adversaries typically do that. They'll have you know long haul forms of C two. They have different areas in case you do kick them right. out. They can get back in through some sort of long haul. That's, uh, that's one of the most common mistakes I've seen. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, attacker, attacker is identified within the network, getting blocked. Uh, the SOC analysts think, okay, this attack was mitigated. I can close the incident. But in fact, the attacker has some persistent technique, which help him just to come back and, you know, keep keep the lateral movement uh, using different technique. So, yeah. Sure. So are you putting, I'm going to, I know this is somewhat... Um deprecated at this point but, but but still pretty relevant from a method methodological like perspective but like cyber uh cyber kill chain right so understanding well they're here now but how do they get in right and understanding based on how they got you know if you don't close down how they got in you could kick them out right you could you could wipe out all of their persistence but if you but if you haven't patched the way they got in maybe they can get right back in again so in your and you know investigative process are you using something like cyber kill chain or maybe just miter attack to to try to you know forensically map what that what that kill chain was yeah yeah so that, that's exactly that we are trying to to work and and speak in terms of miter uh because like that's the common language between different security teams and stuff um so we're always trying to trace back according to the cyber kill chain, of course, and saying, okay, if, if the attacker is found on, on my domain controller, which is not connected to the internet in some kind of way, then he probably had some uh, previous access to the network using uh, over phishing to, to an employee or web access using some kind of web show. And yeah, we're always trying to go back and trace back the attacker and find the initial access technique. And after we are identifying it, then we will try to provide the right mitigations to prevent this from happening again. Sure. So, have you, just in your own experience, to the extent that you can share, have you had, I mean, I'm sort of interested in any real interesting investigations or cases that you've had, but have you had one where you had a particularly pesky or persistent attacker where you you know you did knock them out one place but then you know, you know you sort of understood that they might still be somewhere else so you you know continue to hunt around and you find them somewhere else or maybe they get back in uh, i'm curious if you have any stories there yeah yeah so uh we've had uh, an incident for example where we've seen attacker um getting in the company infiltrating using uh, rdp brute force the company has uh, had some open rdp server to the internet the attacker basically brute forced it over a couple of days, um, and then he, he successfully got got the access to the server. Then he started to do some reconnaissance discovery on the server itself. I tried to do some lateral movement, and then where we came in, contained um, all the activity, and then uh, blocked the persistence techniques. He had some kind of third-party tool which is used uh, for um rdp uh, something similar to any desk or team viewer uh, which helped him to gain persistency we kicked it out of, of the server and then one month later he came in from uh open exchange server um, so even if you block the first initial access um, 
you know, companies have, uh, especially big enterprises, have huge attack surface. So you can't, I don't think that you can block everything. You can't be 100% uh, hermetic and not, uh, not let attackers to get in the network. But that's why you shouldn't focus on the perimeter, the perimeter and have different detections along the way, along the cyber kill chain in order to detect this attack. Uh, even if your perimeter was breached, try to detect the attacker when he's doing the lateral movement, when he's trying to perform domain discovery. Um, so yeah, we've seen such cases where the attackers come back from, from different way, but when he was within the network, we identified him again, and then traced back and over and over. Yeah, isn't that that's sort of like a fundamental premise of threat hunting is, is or at least from, from my understanding yeah. is like, you are breached. Or just to say that you are right, and and you know continue to hunt because, I mean it's you know that you're not impossible to breach, you know. Um, so assume that you are, and and you know try to find evidence of it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's that's the all like assume breach concept. Right. Always assume there's an attacker there. Always assume that you're breached, and yeah, you can't focus only on the perimeter. So I imagine that, you know, a lot of the work that you've done, you're seeing what is the very common techniques for, you know, for getting in, for moving laterally, for, for maintaining persistence. Have you seen anything, and this is sort of the beauty of some of the, the more scientific means of threat hunting, where you go beyond just looking at what the common TTPs are, but you start looking for things that are anomalous or things that, um, uh, you know, more from like a research capacity, like are different. Have, have you seen any unique or like novel persistence or C2 or lateral movement um, techniques? Um, let's see. I can say that most of the attacks, as, as I mentioned earlier, are like 80% of the attacks using 80% of the time by this, uh, the same TTPs, the same techniques, um, but if I'm trying to think on the novel stuff and uh, the unique capabilities, um, you know, vulnerabilities can be, of course, uh, always unique and surprising uh, because you're always discovering new stuff. Um, you know, there's more advanced stuff of of like uh, of persistence. Like most of the attackers use. As for my experience, use like uh, third-party tools. Um, if if I'm talking on the endpoints, uh, third-party tools in order to connect again and again to these servers, like AnyDesk, Screen Connect, ThinkViewer, etc., um, or services. Um, but a cool thing, cool technique I've seen is like abusing uh, WMI uh, subscribes and and consumers, which is like registering an event, uh, which then will be triggered upon a specific event in, in your on your computer. For example, when the clock is um, when the clock uh, of the computer hits I don't know twelve at midnight, uh, an outbound connection will be initiated to the domain server, and it all happen uh, within the WMI infrastructure. So that's that's a cool technique I can think about. Yeah. What about like tooling? Are you seeing? A lot of like custom C2 tooling, or are you seeing like Cobalt Strike and other open source C2 tooling? So we are seeing both. I think 
I think in 90, 99%, it's, these are the same, the same tools, but obfuscated, obviously, uh, taking Mimikatz and then compiling it with different, uh, I don't know, uh, comments or different, uh, variable names. So the hash would be different and then it's, it's being much harder to detect. So most of the time, these are the same, the same tools. Uh, with different hashes and with slightly slightly different behavior, so yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I had I had something I had something I wanted to key on, but now I forget. Um, for companies that want to start threat hunting, I think we talked about logging getting that in place at what point would you say I, I think we see like with uber right now so you probably saw everything happening with uber and now uh i think i saw some joke on twitter like you know somebody went and looked up like their linkedin or careers portal and there's like 20 security <laughs> positions yeah I've seen, that. I've seen that yeah you know i think that that assumption that you are breached and that you should start hunting now rather than after the incident is super important so for you know for comp and i still think there are a lot of companies that say oh well, you know we're not we're not big enough right we're not why would we be a target um so for any company that has sort of that perspective what would you say to them in terms of you know that there's a very real possibility that you will be a target and, and, and not, not even, I mean, there's a lot of like commodity style malware and attackers that are more opportunistic in terms of, you know, mass phishing campaigns, or, you know, they're just mm -hmm. trolling Shodan and see that you have an open RDP server. And they're like, well, I might as well get in there and do, you know, uh, obviously ransomware and, and crypto mining is, is, uh, an effective way to, you know, just spam out. And if you, you know get something you, you know you get something on on the on the line like reel it in it's it's almost free money at that point um rather than being like a very specific target like uh you know obviously there's apt actors that are targeting specific organizations because they have you know some they're either a lot it's a big financial gain or you know it's it's government it's politically inspired or something but for for, for all the companies out there that think ah i'm fine nobody's gonna target me what would you say yeah, so I think that's what you mentioned. It's, it's very, very accurate because I think that most of the attacker don't care which organization they are going to attack as long as they will successfully attack it and deploy this ransomware, extort them, uh, exfiltrate the sensitive data. So if you're going to be the easiest target for the attacker, I mean, the attackers have pretty easy techniques in order to, to scan the internet using Shodan and uh, other scanning tools. So it doesn't matter how, um, I think, how big you are. Of course, the, the larger, the very large enterprises will be focused more than, than the small ones. But between all the smalls and medium companies, I don't think there's a really big difference. And if you're going to be the easy target, you're going to be attacked. That's what, that's what I, I'm thinking. And uh, if you'll have this uh, open RDP server or something like that, um, and the attacker will scan you and will successfully uh, breach the server, then you're probably going to be attacked. So 
you don't have to to invest i don't know millions of dollars and uh in in security but if you are a small or medium business uh try to um have the most um try to invest in order to find these hygiene gaps uh like um open ser- open uh servers to the internet um hard coded credentials uh within within scripts as we just seen in the uber hack um try to educate your employees as much as possible but you know generally you don't have to be a large company to get attacked you just need to be an easy target for the attack right and I th- so I, I was actually scrolling through the the uh the hunters main page and I and I saw something I think is very relevant to that that conversation um and maybe you can talk a little bit about how hunters does this or facilitates it but attack surface management or attack surface coverage as I think it's listed here obviously we you want to look at you know what that attacks obviously I think we've talked about how preventing attacks I mean you can't prevent attacks uh you might be able to harden your perimeter but you have to know that that's not you know, that's not a silver bullet and you have to have some detection mechanism inside. But in order to at least knock out a large swath of what might be a successful attack against your organization, you should probably start with your, you know, immediate attack surface, likely your external attack surface. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess, give me your thoughts on, on, you know, how an organization can do effective attack surface management or external attack surface management and how hunters comes into play. So, um, as I started, it all, it all comes, uh, it all starts with visibility. Um, if I would be security, security guy within, within, a let's say small or medium organization, I would try to, first of all, map all the relevant, um, um, all the relevant attack surface, uh, devices, I'll say, um, or attack surface interfaces, basically, because Today we're we're really focused on 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 premise the environment and endpoints and stuff, but uh, there's a lot of, of of attacks going in only on the cloud environment on you know Azure AWS etc. Um, so I've seen companies where the security team didn't didn't even was familiar with all the relevant devices that they had. Uh, for example, we've seen it really. Um, uh, really good in the lock for shell attack where companies were breached and didn't even know about the servers that were compromised before they were compromised, right? So I think the first thing would be um, have this, I don't know, if you're yeah, like using it in, uh, storing it in spreadsheets or some uh, CMDB uh, um, softwares, et cetera, et cetera. Have it all consolidated and managed in, in one place is very, very important. So know your organization attack, attack surface. After you are getting familiar with, with your attack surface, try to have the visibility to what's going on there. Sure. Uh, so if it's like AWS, try to collect AWS uh, CloudTrail logs, web applications, collect these web application logs, and so on. And yeah. My, I have a background in my early days um, in vulnerability management. And prior to the term attack surface gaining popularity, um, we just called it inventory, right? And, and if you're familiar with like the critical security controls, like number one and number two critical security controls 
have an accurate hardware and software inventory, right? And, and effectively your attacks, and there's a little bit more to a attack service than that. And obviously it has a certain context, but at the end of the day, all of security is based, you know, I mean, there's a number of, of things within it, but a, a lot of it is understand what you're protecting, right? You can't protect what you don't know about. And so whether it's threat hunting, whether it's pen testing, whether it's red teaming, whether it's vuln management, whether it's GRC, generally speaking, you need to know what you have. Um, so, understanding how you pull that inventory together and doing it effectively and doing it continuously is, is I mean, it's easier, easier said than done, right? And now that organizations are, they're in AWS, they're in Azure, they're using a lot of other SaaS products. They've got, uh, you know, BYOD, right? They've got mobile devices, they might have IoT devices, they're, they're sort of all over the place. So under, how, how to pull that inventory together is, is not exactly easy, but that is the, you know, sort of the first thing you need to do in order to understand you know how to do any of this right you can't threat you can't pull logging in to do threat hunting if you don't understand know even know what you have right exactly exactly yeah yeah and that, that's i think where hunters come comes into into the picture because uh if i'll focus on on these cloud environments and SaaS environments so uh the cloud providers are doing pretty good uh pretty good job at identifying and, and listing uh, those assets that you have on their environments. So when uh, Hunters is being, uh, is being uh, is start operates for, for a specific customer, we are integrating with these cloud providers. And then by consuming into their logs, we are uh, providing what we call visibility dashboards in order to show you, okay, that's your environment. These, these are your servers. Uh, these are the external facing servers. Uh, these are the softwares that are running on this server. Uh, if I'm going to, uh, if I focus specifically on the log for shell attack, then we provided a visibility dashboard, which shows according to the logs ingested in hunters, what servers are uh, vulnerable to the log for shell and, be, um, and what servers are externally facing. So when you know, okay, I have this server, which is both externally facing and vulnerable to the log for shell it puts him on, on a critical list. Uh, and that's where I should start uh, patching, right? Right. Uh, and that's, I think that's another important piece, right? Is for, I mean, for anything in security, right? You see this a lot, especially in like the vulnerability management or, or, or app application security space where you, let's say you, you in an environment where you've never done vulnerability scanning, you drop it in, uh, it scans your entire network. Let's assume you have a great inventory. It scans your entire network and you find a million things. So how do you prioritize from there? So prioritization in the security world is, I think, especially important because you're always going to find more than you can deal with at any given time. So how do you prioritize, exactly. right? And that's having a good understanding of how to calculate risk. And in order to calculate risk, you need to understand, you know, back to your original, um, you know, what do you need to threat hunt? You need to have that organizational context. Um, so maybe you can give me some insight into either your personal or like Hunter's uh, risk calculation methodology. Yeah, so how we, uh, the way that we are calculating the risk of, of, of specific uh, alerts, incidents uh, or inside the Hunter's platform is by multiplying two metrics, I'll say. The first one is confidence, um, which is basically the confidence of uh, whether this alert is uh, a true positive alert. Um, 
So let's say if I've seen, I don't know, uh, an MSI exec a binary process run, running on my system, it can be both legitimate installation or an attacker abusing it. So we have a lot of uh, automatic investigation models and um, operations which we are using in order to determine this confidence. And it goes from very unlikely, which says it's most probably false positive, to very likely, which it says, okay, that, that's one is like by 99% true positive. And this, this is the first matrix. And the second one is the severity. Uh, so what we're saying is, okay, the, if this activity would have been a true positive, how, how, how bad is it for my organization? And it can be determined for, from um, how advanced is the technique in the cyber kill chain. Um, I think we can agree that um, if it's an exfiltration activity, then it would be much more severe than initial access activity, you know, because that's that's where the real impact of my organization is is in. Uh, so it can be determined from the specific technique used, and it can be determined from the organizational context. So if that's a sensitive asset, if it's a crown jewel, if this is um, an OT environment uh, device, um, or if it's a domain controller then the impact of this attack on on this entity within the organization would have much more uh, severity to my to my uh, basically security security uh, architecture sure so yes applying both both of these metrics we are coming up with what we call risk level which can be low medium high or critical so that's so to make sure i understand i think it's kind of cool if this is the way you're doing it but you're so part of that severity calculation is how close from a technique perspective, how close are you to the actual objective? So if you're, exactly. you know, if you're thinking again in like the, in the kill chain context, if you're at the point at which you're seeing C2, you're potentially pretty close to whatever. And, and you sort of have to understand what the attacker's objective might be. It could be, it could be exfil, right? It could just be stealing data. It could be ransomware. It could be, uh, I don't know. I mean, what other, what other, actually, that's, it's a different question, but like, yeah, what other, what other interesting objectives ones. have you seen? Yeah. So I think, uh, ransomware, uh, which is, which I'm putting it under the impact, uh, tactic, um, and exfiltration. So it can be used, it can be operated by, for espionage. Uh, it can be used for extortion. So I think these are the two main things, exfiltrating sensitive information and impacting the organization, whether for money or for disrupting your your uh, services, et cetera, et cetera. Sure, yeah. yeah that's, that's actually a pretty interesting way. I've never really thought about that before, but yeah, understand. And I think that's pretty important. And you see that too, kind of from a pen testing perspective where you'll have a vulnerability but okay you know what can they do with that vulnerability can they achieve a you know a worthwhile is there a worthwhile impact right can they can an attacker achieve a likely objective using that that potential vulnerability um you know i think like the one people make fun of is like cross-site scripting they'll like show like you know the impact is they pop an alert box well uh, i mean yeah. that's not that big of a deal but can you if you can do something else with it and actually, you know, a more meaningful impact than, than sure. 
Um, so I think that's a very um, underutilized method to calculate severity is, you know, even if it's something that could be used in, a, in an attack chain for a very meaningful impact, you know, it the risk is somewhat inherently lower if it's further away, if it's step one in an attack chain versus step eight, because you might have something at step six that's a layered defense mechanism that could block it in theory, right? Depending on yeah. the, the route that they take. So that's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. Like and that. if, I mean, if you're doing the same thing, like using the same technique on, you know, one of the employees' uh, devices, which let's say not an admin, uh, uh, not an admin endpoint, and if you're doing the same thing and the same technique on domain controller, it has different impact on the organization. So that's also something we should uh, it should we should be considered. Yeah, that's definitely like the environmental understanding and sort yeah. of the context. Uh, it, right. I and that, that is, I think, that at least in my own methodology, uh, you know. A potential vulnerability on something that doesn't matter versus a potential vulnerability that same vulnerability on something that does matter, right? That that you know what that data is and what that what that um, you know uh, entity does, right? Is, is is pretty important there, of course, for risk calculation. Um, I actually remember what I was going to ask you before. From a So that a lot of organizations that get breached, they go and, you know, they know they've been breached, right? Because maybe it's something very obvious, like, you know, they got hit, struck by ransomware and it was rampant across the organization. And they go and bring in somebody like Mandiant to do, you know, this post-breach assessment, containment, whatever they're going to do, right? Depending on the nature of, of, of the incident, of the compromise. From a threat hunting perspective, do you consider threat hunting more like proactive or are you being brought in to do like we know we've been breached and now we need you guys to come in to continue to you know to do some hunting because we assume that they might be other places other than the obvious places and we need help with containment and and eradication and and all, and all of these things yeah so i think i think that's why uh incident response and threat hunting are in some way similar um these are different roles and I think incident responders will do better to know incident response than I'll do. Um, and the same for threat hunting. Uh, but in some ways, like in order to, um, in ways of uh, like tracking down the attack and um, understanding the full picture of the attack, it's very, very similar to both roles. So I think that threat hunting can also have quite nice, uh, quite big place in, in such of, of incidents investigation in order to understand, okay, let's let's try to uh, have this mindset of, let's say if I wasn't, if I didn't cover all, all the relevant art artifacts and the attacker still has some persistence within my network. And then starting from this place and um, also connecting to what we said about the assume breach, Let's let's assume the attack is still not fully contained, and let's start hunting from this that uh, perspective in order to find this uh, this additional access point of the attacker. Sure. So yeah, I mean, at, at any point, especially if you, let's say you have ransomware, I think this could be a, a good example. Actually, you have and and maybe you can speak to situations you've seen like this. But you have an organization, they get ransomed. Uh, maybe they pay the ransom. Maybe they bring somebody in to you know 
unlock their devices or, or otherwise, you know, try to get rid of, um, you know, the actual systems that have been locked and then, you know, therefore ransomed, but they don't mm -hmm. ever take the time to ask, well, how did they get in? Could they still be here? Um, is yeah. this, is this cause, cause you know, the media concern is we need our data back. We need to make sure that, that, you know, they're not extorted because of the data that may have been exfilled as part of that ransom wearing process. And at the point in which their computers are running again and their data's safe, as far as they can tell, they're like, okay, I think we're fine. Right. Take a sigh of a relief, but they never went and, t and said, could they still be here? Could they do this again? Are they doing something else? Is this something yeah. And seen? I think that, uh, you know, in contrast to what people think around ransomware, the process of deploying this ransomware is not always from zero to hundred. It's not like the attacker clicks, clicks on enter and then boom, all of the devices in your organization are affected. Um, in most cases I've seen, it's, it happens gradually. So the attacker has some, um, some presence on the domain controller and then it's deploying the ransomware using, let's say, GPO. Then in most cases, it will affect all the endpoints which are connected to this domain but not the computers on the other domains. And what the attacker would do is really try to lateral move to another like focal place where he will be able to deploy this ransomware on the additional endpoints. And what if there are endpoints which are not connected at, at the same time to the organization? Then they are not impacted and you need you still need to protect them. So um, what I'm saying, what I'm trying to say is even when you are impacted by, by this ransomware, most of the times it, it won't be a hundred percent of your network. And then you need, you have to start thinking about, okay, I know that there is an attacker in my network and he got to deploy ransomware on some of my endpoints, but I still have some, some of them, which are still out there, not being impacted and I don't want them to be impacted. So try to understand what's the focal point that the attackers are holding and to eradicate it, you know, sure. uh, try to segregate different subnets from one to each other. Um, and yeah, not, don't like say, okay, I was impacted. That's game over. And that like, now let's start to, uh, recover my network. Right. And that actually, you know, makes me think just from a, a defense perspective, if you, if you, think about defense and what are the most likely impacts, the most likely objectives for an attacker, right? And, and commonly we're seeing, I think you mentioned ransomware and, and, you know, data theft, right? Some, some level of like, we're, you have something that we want, we want to get it either to extort you or because it's, uh, you know, intellectual property or whatever it might be, or state secrets, whatever, you know? Um, so, when you think about it that way, it becomes a little bit easier to wrap your head around, well, how do we protect against ransomware, right? You mentioned segmentation, right? So zero trust, some level of, you know, make it hard to, for a, an actor to spread rapidly, because if they can only ransomware three things, I mean, it kind of depends what those three things are, but it's likely the impact is reduced pretty, you know, to a, to a great, you know, a great degree, if they've only really ransomware three things, and hopefully you have like backups, um, or something like that. But if you think about it that way, you know, 
okay, how do we defend against ransomware? You know, there's a few things that are probably, you know, pretty good. There's no silver bullet in anything, but probably pretty good. Or, you know, how do we stop exfil, right? So maybe look at like, you know, focusing a lot of your detections on seeing what's coming out, right? Maybe it's, or using t technologies like DLP coupled with other sort of things to, to, to monitor to monitor that sort of traffic. So with that sort of thinking in terms of how do we design, how do, you know, what do we prioritize from a security uh, control perspective? Are there other security mitigations or controls that you would recommend to stop the most common impacts that you see? Yes, so I think you mentioned really big two, uh, two points around it, which are the segmentation and the backup, right? Always have a backup because then the attacker, okay, so uh, even if you took some sensitive data, you always, you also, you, you have it in the other place. So it's all, it's all good um, in terms of losing it, right? Um, but when I'm looking from the cyber perspective, uh, what you need to do is try to, and that's like um, something that I see uh, pretty interesting where threat hunting can come in, is try to hunt not for the actual attacks, but for the hygiene gaps within the network. Uh, we like to call it hunt for the next attack, uh, because what you can do as a threat hunter is trying to identify those hygiene gaps, such as domain uh, local administrator accounts on on different endpoints in the organization or um, IDP logins not using MFA, right? Those hy hygiene gaps can be crucial uh, when the attacker is trying to attack your network. They can leverage it in order to gain access, uh, operate lateral movement. Um, I don't know, if, if I'm looking on specific uh, specific technique, uh, what, what we do, um, what we do usually is try to find weak encryption, weak encryption methods within Active Directory environments, which can later be abused by attackers to operate Kerberos team. Okay, because when attacker doing Kerberos is trying to get um, a weekly, a weak uh, encrypted TGS ticket, and then to brute force it in order to get uh, the NTLM hash of, of the service account. So. When I'm trying to hunt for weak encryption, uh, weak encryption methods used uh, normally, then I know, okay, if this happens now, then it means attacker will be able to leverage it once it will be inside the network. Right. So that's so, what you're saying. What I'm hearing is leverage your vulnerability data, right? If exactly, I mean, yeah. a parallel is, you know, if you you're trying to see if someone's in your house, well, go look if your front door is unlocked. If it's unlocked, you're, I mean, I don't know, there's a, a better chance that somebody might be in your house, whether they are or not, but, but you can key on that. Um, so yeah, I mean, certainly take, yeah, that vulnerability data. You know, furthermore, like when you're checking if your door's in, door is unlocked, you're saying, okay, maybe there's no one in the house, but if the door is unlocked, it may be really easy for, for, uh, for a thief or something or someone to get into your house, right? Sure. So just lock this door. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So I guess pivoting off that though, um, do you see or recommend, or I guess in your experience, are you seeing a lot of companies or, or I guess your company recommending using the, you know, honey concepts, so like honey networks, honey, honey pots, honey tokens in order to, yeah. 
you know, sort of facilitate threat hunting. Because if you understand what an actual attacker is doing, you can you can watch them live in an environment that's a sandbox, a controlled environment that's meant to attract an attacker. Then you can use that knowledge, right? That essentially intelligence at that point to to threat hunt or otherwise, you know, lay down detection mechanisms and, and controls in your environment. Are you, are you seeing that a lot? Yeah, yeah. So um, I'll say that we don't, uh, we are not uh, providing deceptions within our our, our customers' networks. Uh, Hunters is a SaaS platform, so we don't have any access to the, to the actual network of the organization. But I'm totally in favor, like personally, I'm, to- I'm totally um, encouraging companies to use deception um having those um external facing uh servers which are known as honeypots or having these accounts um account credentials stored within different uh, focal points within the organization so you know it shouldn't be used by anyone uh, else by the attacker um and placing these deceptions within their network i'm totally in favor um, and attackers are truly falling into these these places. So, right, because outside of a very sophisticated attacker that's trying to go really low and slow and really not trigger anything, a lot of attackers probably assume that you don't have robust robust detection mechanisms and don't have, you know, the ability to respond fast enough to really catch them. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly, yeah. and that's why deception is is so important and takes place. Right, right, right. Yeah, that's very cool. Um, are, are there deception technologies that you like specific platforms or specific tools like open source tools that that you that you've seen used that you think are good? Um, not specifically, I've heard uh, about canary tokens, which is a free tool, uh, which can be used in order to uh placing these these kind of deceptions artifacts uh, i'm not really familiar with how it works behind the scenes but i've seen it a few times within customers environments and it proved it proved pretty pretty uh it proved itself pretty good so yeah that's, that's you... the only one i, I can uh, recommend on yeah i've seen security researchers that that have you know they've put something out on the internet like super exploitable box out there on the internet and they're just collecting data and they share that out have you you do you does you know do you maybe in your own personal research or hunters use data sets like that to build you know to i guess as i guess as an intelligence source to say well you know here's what here's what it seems like attackers might be scanning for right now or or you know assuming they get a foothold on this, you know, device, what they're doing after that. Right. And I assume a lot of those like initial chains are probably fully automated, right? Cause attackers are just spamming right. across. They're like, boom, Definitely. I got, I got a, it looks like I got a Linux shell, like, you know, I'm established persistence this way. Try to look around to see what else there is, uh, you know, establish some situational awareness, whatever it may be. Are you guys using something like that? Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, we, uh, it's very common um tool to use it's very common like a uh, like technique where uh we're just placing uh servers which are uh used as honeypots um and i know a lot of companies and researchers researchers do so um it can help to some point because 
you know, basically you can't simulate an entire environment uh, with domain controllers and, and cloud environment, etc. So you can you can uh, find trends and stuff, um, scanning activities, new vulnerabilities that comes out. You see it really really takes place. So when when there's new vulnerability out, uh, then you then you see a massive increase in in these vulnerability exploitation activities. Um, so it can really be it can be really good in order to identify those trends in terms of initial access mainly and discovery. Sure. So yeah. Sure. Very cool. Um, for anyone who's interested in getting into threat hunting, I know you've been doing it for a few years now, um, but that's not really, I mean, your background wasn't in specifically threat hunting. It's not like you've been doing it for 10 years. So it's somewhat fresh in your mind, you know, your your journey from not having done much of it at all to being where you are now. So for, for somebody who now, you know, maybe they listen to this podcast, maybe they heard about threat hunting, they think it sounds cool. Um, what would you recommend they, you know, Either maybe it's courses, maybe it's books, maybe it's just concepts and technologies that you'd recommend that they they learn more about study. So uh, I think there are pretty good courses out there. Um, one that I did back then was uh, I used the source of, of practical threat hunting course. Um, I don't really remember how's the company behind it called, but uh, that's that's how the the course called practical threat hunting. Um, so use courses, courses to, to learn what's it's, what it's all about. Um, try to read and read a lot about new attacks, uh, go over miter, read about different techniques, uh, how attackers can leverage it. Try to uh, read. Um, I like to read the DFI reports because it gives you a really good example of how attackers operate and how attackers think. So th really try to get into this attacker mindset. Um, and yeah, basically read a lot. Go go to Twitter, read blog posts, read articles, read read uh, different reports. Sure. Yeah. I, th I mean, I think you said, right, threat hunting exists because there are attackers, right? So understanding what attackers are doing um, is super important. And, and I think there's a lot of based on what I've seen, a, a wealth of offensive focused training out there, right? There's like hack the box. There's all, there's all this red team pen testing training out there. And there's, and I think it's because that's what people gravitate to. That's what sells yeah. better, more so than like instant response and threat hunting and otherwise like the blue side, um, of the house. So it, it's, probably worth saying that if you if you know one part of being an effective threat hunter is understanding how you know attackers do things so if you can do pen testing yourself if you can do red teaming yourself then you can use that knowledge to to be a better threat hunter yeah exactly exactly and you know ctf can be always fun uh fun way to learn this kind of things uh, i've done a lot back then when i had uh, more time but uh yeah yeah you know there's much more pen testing and red team side, but there are also blue team kind of red team, uh, CTFs, which can can basically you can learn a lot from them. Yeah, I, I think that would actually be a cool like blog post series if somebody did hack the box, but did their write ups in like uh, a very defensive focused way. Like you know, here's I 
and maybe it would be hard to because you don't have access to the underlying box. But maybe if you had, if you did, like you could use a phone hub or something, and uh, you know, run the you know run the exploit, right? Get to the root flag or whatever. But then go in and say, you know, what artifacts were left? Like what could have stopped this? Maybe yeah. maybe you implement your own defensive control. Like that would be kind of a cool write up series and in a good way um, for anyone who wanted to to learn more about how you would detect that and and maybe otherwise block it. Mm -hmm. And then yeah, yeah. try to attack it in different ways. I guess that's then that's getting into like I mean that, then effectively you have purple teaming you're like doing yeah, you're that's a one man purple team shop. Exactly, exactly. That's that's what we are trying to do in order to research. We are doing uh, more things in the, in our team rather than threat hunting, and one of them that's exactly that it's uh, simulating these kind of attacks, mostly the new attacks, uh, vulnerabilities and stuff, and then identifying those artifacts that are remaining in the logs that later on we can leverage and, and hunt for them. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty cool. Um, I mean, I think that's all the questions I had. You know, I think we've been going at this for uh, 75 minutes or so. I, is, I mean, is, do you have any other uh, topics you wanted to cover or questions for me or anything? Um, yeah, yeah, I think it's it's really, really cool. Uh, I'm, I'm totally in favor of threat hunting, mainly because it combines both worlds. Um, actually, it, it would be interesting uh, to hear from you if you ever, when you are doing red teaming and pen testing, are you focusing on these artifacts? Are you thinking about them at all? I, th you know, in, in some scenarios, in some contexts, yes, it really just depends on the scope of the engagement and what I'm trying to achieve. Um, like mm -hmm. I said, I, you know, I have a background in vulnerability management and and what you look for there is you know you don't really you don't really dive too deep you just want to know is there a vulnerability and then you just try to patch it right and then moving from there you're looking at pen testing and it goes a little bit deeper it's like okay there's a vulnerability but but what's the impact right mm -hmm. and and then more recently you know i've done some some red teaming type work and at that point i'm starting to think more like well what am i leaving behind right um and so in that way, you know, I start to think about what somebody on the opposite side, right? What, you know, what detections might be in place to stop this? What, if there is an active, you know, threat hunting presence, you know, somebody, you know, not just, not just tooling that's trying to stop me or, or maybe like UBA or something that is, you know, actively looking for things um, in a way that could catch me. I'm looking. Is there a, is there an actual manual person behind the screen somewhere saying, "Well, that looks weird," and then and then trying to hunt me down essentially? Um, so I mean, I guess that's a very long-winded way of saying, kind of sometimes, um, <laughs> but uh, certainly something to consider. And I think it's I think it's I think it's very easy to get bogged down with something like. You know, again, I'll go back to vulnerability scanning. It it produces so much at the point in which even if you go and prioritize, you know, let's say you get a thousand findings and two hundred of those are critical, and let's say you fix all the criticals and you go to the high risk ones and you're doing that, and I think you lose you get so focused on this list of vulnerabilities, you just you stop thinking about you stop thinking about it and like leveraging CTI and leveraging these other um, you know uh defensive capabilities i i think i think at the point in which you've covered 
the low hanging fruit from a vulnerability perspective, you should start thinking, well, okay, attackers don't think this way. Attackers aren't thinking like, oh no, they patched all their high risk vulnerabilities that Nessus found, like we must be safe. Um, you know, I think that's where the way people approach defense in depth and securing their network needs to, you know, shift a little bit, needs to focus on like, you know, let's, let's, let's look at attack service management. Now let's start looking at CTI and leveraging a little bit of threat hunting and jump around and don't, and don't focus so much on, you know, let's do all the, let's fix, let's patch all of our vulnerabilities first. All of our vulnerabilities need to be patched first before we even focus on threat hunting. Cause then at that point, I, I think you, you lose sight of something that should be higher priority. Yeah. Which is again, a long winded way of saying, I think it's worth the way that I approach security to, you know, to, to, to jump around in a, in a little bit better way and maybe use some threat hunting concepts. Maybe that yeah. answers the question. It was sort of rambly, but you know, that's the way I roll. <laughs> no, no, it was interesting, interesting perspective. Yeah. Um, yeah, man, it was, it was great having you on. Uh, I, I think, you know, one thing I really like about these conversations is I always, beyond just like talking with people, because I sit inside my house all day, I don't talk to anybody, but, uh, you know, I always, I always come away with, you know, a, whether it's a fresh perspective or just slightly revamped, pers- you know, of my own perspective on how to approach things. Um, but also one reason why I do this and one reason why I've always liked security is I'm always, I'm just interested in everything. And obviously threat hunting is that sort of upper echelon advanced, you know, blue team side and it, and it, and it mirrors red teaming. And, and that's an area that I've been personally interested in such a way that, I mean, it's also, I think red teaming doesn't exist without threat hunting and vice versa. So that's mm-hmm. why like purple teaming is a whole thing. So, um, yeah, I think it's just really cool to, to bolster both sides. Yeah. 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 Well, yeah. Thanks again. Um, Thanks for having me. Yeah, maybe really fun. uh... Maybe one day I'll I'll get into threat hunting a little bit more, and you can come back on the show, and I'll wow you with all my new threat hunting knowledge. (laughs) Awesome, awesome, sounds great. So have a lot of uh, good luck. Yeah, man. 